Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and I'm here to help Paul cover the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org, the website he's been writing and publishing since 1999. This week is the first full week of August 2021, and the big stories are five, and we'll talk about them here. Paul? So should we start with a plutocrat's expensive friends? Well, Monday is always a good place to start a week. It is. Let's not fight over it. I mean, you could start it Sunday, which is actually the first day, but we don't, we, we put up the podcast on Sunday instead yeah. of a script. So the vlog version of the podcast. So there you are. Yes. Well, Larry Householder is a former Speaker of the House of Ohio. And as the pandemic began, Speaker Householder uh, was mum about this, but all of a sudden there materialized a campaign to toughen term limits. Hmm, that's interesting. A campaign to toughen term limits that I hadn't heard anything about. Oh, great. There's some hardcore term limit people out there. Uh, and I know there are, but uh, so then we looked behind it a little bit and we wrote about this back a year ago, um, but it turned out that this wasn't really making term limits tougher. In Ohio, they have an eight-year limit for the House, eight-year limit for the Senate. Uh, you can sit out and then come back. I believe you have to sit out four years, uh, but you could run from the House over to the Senate. And you'll hear stories about people who do that. Aren't they thwarting term limits? And very few people actually successfully do that. And I say that this way because you never read that in the stories. For some reason, the media never explains that, oh, this is a fairly rare occurrence. I believe years ago when there was a debate in California, 8% of the people in the legislature had served in both chambers. And of course, I don't think there's anything wrong with serving in both chambers, just not too long. But what they were doing to make term limits tougher were to, were to do eight-year lifetime limits. So once you served eight years in the House or in the Senate, then you had to go to the other one and you could never come back for life, which I'm just fine with. I used to be Tim, uh, somewhat in favor of consecutive, why knock somebody out for life? Just give them a little break. That way they lose the power of incumbency. But the completely unreasonable desire to serve an office forever, for as long as possible, for every moment possible, to crawl over broken glass to serve an office, uh, lifetime limits are just better for everybody involved. Let the person know, this is it. This is it. Someone else is going to serve. Get over it. And uh, the public likes lifetime limits just as much as they like uh, the other limits, if not more. So that was the thing. They're going to make it much tougher. And you wonder, well, uh, this is great, except there were a few little caveats. For one, they were going to change the eight and eight to 16 years overall, 16 life, year lifetime limit. Now what happens, and this is something else that politicians go, oh, it's the same limits, 16, eight and eight it equals 16. So it's all the same, except of course it's not the same. 
Because if there are 16 year limits, you're going to have a term and then every other term, you're the incumbent. And so you're going to stay in the same chamber for 16 years. And you've just basically taken an eight year limit and made it a 16 year limit. All the politicians know that. All the people who like term limits know that. That's why they love it and we hate it. And I say it again, because if you read articles about this in your state, you know, they're not going to talk to any of the term limit people. Probably it's just going to be talking to the politicians and they're going to pretend that, oh, it's really the same thing. But Householder was not okay with just maybe giving himself another eight years uh, in the House. He wanted another 16. So the other little caveat in there was this wipes out all past service. And when we wrote about it uh, back in 2020, when, he, when this first broke, <clears throat> we compared him to Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, the president or grand poobah or dictator or whatever of, of Russia, because Putin was doing the same thing. You know, Putin for years has kind of switched back from president to prime minister and so on and so on to avoid term limits. This is, you know, unlike Xi Jinping in China, Putin still tries to pretend that he has something to do with democracy. Um, and, and so that's, we compared Householder to Putin because they were basically trying to do the same thing. Now, again, Householder was not involved in this effort at all, according to Householder. Well, fast forward a year or so, a little more, and we find out because we also covered this, but months later, Householder was arrested at his home in a, in a dawn raid. Uh, on a racketeering charge. And the racketeering was because he made this big deal with First Energy to get all kinds of campaign contributions and special treatment and moolah and so on. Uh, and he pushed through a billion dollar plus subsidy. I think it was a $2 billion uh, subsidy, uh, it may have been more, for First Energy. Now, this blew up. There was, a, there was a referendum that the people wanted to put it on the ballot. They got screwed over every which way by officials in the government of Ohio. And anyway, as, as it all, you know, this petition effort ended up not going anywhere because of COVID and the pandemic. But it was even had it gone somewhere, the feds were fast on his trail. So in a court settlement, this is a week or so ago, about a week ago, it comes out that yes, this whole term limits deal was First Energy putting $2 million into an effort to give Householder 16 more years as the Speaker of the House. If anyone has any question that elected officials have a lot of power, that's why plutocrats, folks who like to use wealth to control government, uh, that's why they like expensive friends. And they may be expensive, but you know they don't cost really all that much. <laughs> you know, when you think about the benefits you get, like billions of dollars in subsidies, well, of course, spending, you know, I'll spend $2 million if someone will loan me the $2 million all day long to get several billion. That's, that's a pretty good return on investment. And, and so we find out, of course, these offices are incredibly powerful. Yes, people are willing to sell out. 
And the best thing going is that Householder was not able to do more because he had people around him. The Senate president pushed back against some of the things he was doing. This was back when he was first, uh, you know, under the table, helping this term limits effort to give him more time. And other people do. And the it doesn't term limits isn't going to make bad people good people. Term limits isn't going to usher in, you know, nirvana where every human being is perfectly, you know, wonderful all the time and self-actualized, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But it is going to break up power and make it tougher for people to consolidate it in ways that allow them to rip us off. And so all hail term limits. Uh, Mr. Householder still hasn't had his day in court. I hope that goes swimmingly for the uh, state of Ohio. Uh, this is a guy who needs to spend some time thinking, uh, in a, uh, federal correctional institution. So I always like that name householder. It's like, uh, who was, there was some news guy named his last name was good night or something. You know, it's like, it's one of those types type names. I'm, right. Well, I'm, remember Harry Reasoner? Wasn't Harry, yes. Wasn't Reasoner such a good name for, a uh, for a yes. caster? Uh, the Libertarian party recently, uh, had an, as an outgoing and as a resigned chairman named Joseph Bishop Henchman. And if Henchman isn't the best name for somebody in politics, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Joe Henchman and Bill Hack and you know, anybody named Bill Hack, I apologize in advance for, for after the fact. Well, on, uh, on, Tuesday, uh, we talked about the media and really played off of uh, James Bovard, who's a wonderful writer and uh, libertarian, uh, strong libertarian bent. And uh, he had a piece, Will More Media Bias Save Democracy? And this is, of course, available for you at thisiscommonsense.org. And boy, what a heck of a, what a heck of a headline, because... That seems to be the discussion he picked up on uh, Margaret Sullivan, who'd written a piece for the Washington Post, basically suggesting that, you know, the media needed to get more partisan, less objective. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and James Wolfhard kind of questioned that. Um, but it's, it, you know, I went through just some of the different things. And, and let's face it, media bias has been there forever probably will always be there. We had several comments at the website uh, from people saying, hey, the media has never been objective. And let's not, you know, let's not pretend that objective ob objectivity is everything because it's, it's somewhat phony. I sort of agree in the sense that we are better off uh, knowing the bias of the media. Um, you know, I, I get the uh, Epoch uh, Times, and uh, it's a newspaper by Falun Gong. Uh, I got a pretty good indication that they're not, they're not going to be soft on China. And I wanted to find out more about China, and I just as soon get it from somebody who's not soft on China. I mean, I get the Washington Post, so, so I have that. And actually, the Washington Post has gotten much tougher on China. But, um, but I like knowing the bent. And, you know, you read the Washington Post and the New York Times, you know their bent. And I think there are a lot of people who don't figure that in, but, you know, we've got to figure that in. So 
I, I don't object to a to a TV station, a cable news, a uh, newspaper, magazine, what have you, that says, "Hey, here's where we're coming from." Uh, that's just fine because it's honest. But what we have today are people who not only claim to be objective, but claim anybody who kind of disagrees with them needs to be shut down as disinformation, misinformation. And uh, we got a heck of a problem. And we, we talk about this all the time. We're going to continue to talk about it because it is the number one threat all over the world. This has always been the number one threat. It's almost like, like the Second Amendment is so important. I'm so glad that in America, we have, I believe, a firepower advantage over our government. I think that makes them legislate and execute and administrate, you know, in a, in a, uh, a nicer, a kinder, gentler uh, fashion. And I like that. But the truth is there have been revolutions places where the people have no weapons and where the government has all of them. And what is essential, even more essential than having a gun, you know, next to the fireplace is having the ability to speak and using that ability. And of course, sometimes you don't really have the ability. They'll arrest you in a heartbeat but you speak out anyway. That's what causes revolutions. Um, a lot more successful if you know if you have a firepower advantage, or if the you know if the authorities don't think they can just mow you all down. Um, but but free speech is on. It's just being attacked everywhere. And you know we we have talked in recent years a lot about China because they don't allow free speech for 1.4 million Chinese, a uh, billion, billion Chinese. They don't like free speech anywhere else in the world. Anybody who criticizes them anywhere has to fear the long reach and their ability to use soft power and frankly, their ability to use thug power too. Uh, well, here in the US now, we seem to have a lot of people who think that's the way our government should run. That we need to have a, you know, a truth commission that decides what can be said or not said on social media, on TV, and the newspapers. Uh, and in fact, the newspapers are generally pushing this. Now, they're not pushing it for themselves. You notice that. But they are pushing it for, for other media. And in fact, uh, and if you think, well, it's just social media where there's all this crazy talk. No, 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 no. They've pushed it for talk radio. Uh, the newspapers have never come out and said, we need to, we, we, we as newspapers need to be forced to give equal time. But they have argued, and we've talked about it. I can't remember what the script titles were or anything, but we've talked about it several different times at Common Sense. This is commonsense.org. And they will try and have in the past, and will again, I'm sure, try to force radio to allow equal time, TV to allow equal time. And of course, that presupposes that there are two sides to every issue and no more. And it also presupposes that, and it doesn't presuppose, but it pre-knows that if you have to give equal time, it will depress the amount of discussion of public ideas on the airwaves. And I think that's the goal. But I encourage you to, to uh, read. We go back all the way to uh, uh, the fact that uh, Jim Ruttenberg uh, who was a media columnist at the time for the New York Times, before the election, 
uh, of 2016, before Trump was ever president, made the argument that they had to cover Trump differently. They had to, quote, throw out the textbook American journalism has been using and become oppositional to, to Trump. And, um, and boy, have they. But they've, they've become opposi oppositional to all kinds of things. They've got an agenda. They've got a narrative. And it's, it's as clear as day. Now, what was it exactly that uh, Ruttenberg argued that point? Do you remember? It was, I believe, September of, of 2016. Well, it was safely after the press had pushed Trump during the Republican primaries so that they could get the candidate they thought who was easiest to beat. That, I mean, that was the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, strategy. We have the notes on WikiLeaks. So it's kind of interesting that uh, he pretends that the textbook American journalism leading up to that point when he was writing and making the new argument was yes. in some way objective. It wasn't, and it was actually fake objective. Like everything they do is fake objective. Yes, and and, and I remember I uh, I uh, had a stronger stomach then, and I could watch Morning Joe uh, in the morning sometimes on MSNBC just to just to toughen myself up. You know, the best part of that program has always been the intro and outgoing music because you know they tend to play some good music. The rest of it stinks, uh, but. But they, I wouldn't say lionized Trump. They gave Trump tremendous coverage and they were not tough on him at all, at all. It was just, hey, isn't this interesting? What a, you know, he's an outsider. It was, and then it was as, as soon as he got the Republican nomination, it was like a switch, you know, flipped and, uh, and you're exactly right. And again, you don't see much of the mainstream media even talk about this. And, and you see people who are like, like Glenn Greenwald, who are hardcore about journalism being oppositional to unaccountable power. Looking where the power is and analyzing and pushing for more information and transparency and accountability. And of course, in this era of kind of hyper uh, narrative and hyper partisanship in the media, uh, Glenn Greenwald has been kind of a voice crying in the wilderness on the left. There are very few people with him. Uh, there are some, but uh, uh, you know, we, you know, my hat's off to him and, and to the few people who are out there doing what I think is, is real journalism. And it's, it's not as if you can't have a sense of where Glenn Greenwald is on issues or that that doesn't impact what he's saying or how he looks at things, but it's not, you get the feeling that you get more information because he's not so quick to, to worry about how you're going to take it. It's, it's almost as if they just, you know, they're, they want to give us all the news. They just don't think we're up to hearing it and still agreeing with what they want us to do. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, there's two ways of doing propaganda. Uh, one of them is to assume that the people you're trying to convince aren't smart enough to, to uh, go for the truth. You have to package things very carefully so that they have just enough to motivate them to do what you want 
but you don't want them to go off, you know, down any rabbit holes where you might lead to, you know, questioning this person or that person or that truth or that this untruth. I mean, they, that's just, that's too much. The other one is that you have confidence in your positions that you think that no matter what the truth is in any particular story, let's say a story about a politician, whether he's corrupt or not or something or, uh, or senile or not, you know, those kind of things that nevertheless, you're confident enough in your ideology or whatever you're trying to push that you're willing to go for the truth at the expense of immediate expediency in convincing people to do what you want. And I think that long ago, and this might've been in the sixties that it really occurred strongly, news media in America became propagandists without much commitment to the truth. I think it was done because of the CIA. Um, I could be wrong, but I think Operation Mockingbird was a success, a huge, complete success. And now we have a media, news media, the news readers are filled with people who've been through the CIA in some way or some other part of the military industrial complexes, intelligence outfits, and, or they're like Mila Brzezinski, the daughter of one of the main players in the uh, deep state. Yes. Yes. And Brzezinski is, you know, big new Brzezinski was, of course, uh, Carter's foreign policy advisor. Was that what he was? And he was uh, a national security advisor. Right. To and, Carter. and then and then uh, uh, she is uh, the co-host and married to Joe Scarborough, who you mentioned a few moments ago. Yes. Yes. And the, the, the links between the deep state and these newsreaders are really quite uh, interesting to look at. Look at George Stephanopoulos, who literally went from being the main counselor to uh, an advisor to Clinton into a media position as a moderator, as a, you know, uh, it just, there's, there's not much pretense. I mean, if someone argued about it, they'd say, oh no, there's no connection. But, but you look at some of those connections and you think, you know, if this were done, if the, the person who ran Trump's campaign was then the head of, of, you know, Fox, had a show on Fox where he was supposed to be the independent journalist guy. I think, I think we'd hear something about it. And, and I don't put it by Fox because of course they're playing the same game on the other side and not with a, Hey, we're the conservative network, which might be an honest way to do it, but with the fair and balanced. Yeah. They sort of do counterbalance. They should say uh, fair yes. counterbalance would be a more honest way of saying what, what they do. Uh, but wasn't Carl Rove somebody working for Fox for a long time? He is. He's a commentator kind of on Fox, uh, a, a someone they bring in. But yes, of course, he was uh, George W. Bush's. Uh, Similar positions are held by Clapper and Brennan uh, at uh, yes. MSNBC and CNN. I forget which one does, does which. I can't stand watching them. Uh, they're they're. I think they're on both a lot. But but oh, okay. And that's that's the other thing that people who. You know, we and I have said on this podcast that the media is to the left of the Democratic Party. And oftentimes it is. But, you know, it's it, these lines and spectrums and, you know, graphs. It's hard to to pinpoint what is really going on, because I always remind people. Mr. Trump was popular for about a 48 hour period. I mean, popular across all media. And that was after he bombed Syria. Remember Van Jones on CNN, the former communist, 
maybe still the communist. That's that's the fuzzy part. Uh, but then interesting guy to listen to way left big government guy. But remember how he taught. I mean, so he wanted to give Donald Trump a hug. Donald Trump is our president now. He's everyone's president because he killed some people for us or blew some stuff up. And of course, just, you know, just so that truth just just rears its ugly little head just for a second. Of course, the bombing was for a chemical weapons use by the government of Syria. The only problem being that most of the evidence that has now been compiled about that shows that it wasn't the government who did the chemical weapons thing. It was it was another party in that multi-party civil war. And, uh, you know, no love for the Assad regime, uh, evil, vicious, terrible regime. But there's a lot of evil, vicious, terrible in the Middle East. And, uh, and we join in that, in that crowd with the U.S. military bombing when we don't have any real evidence and rationale and justification you know, it used to be, and we've talked many times, Tim, it's a little bit of a tangent, but, but we've talked many times about just war theory. Because there used to be kind of people saying, hey, you know, this is a just war and this is not a just war. And it's like that just got thrown out the window. Who cares whether it's a just war? And, and you know, people could say, well, no war is just. Well, let me ask you, if a bunch of people with knives and guns are smashing through your window to come beat you and your family to death. Is it okay to shoot them? You know what? I'm going to shoot them. I don't even have a gun, so I'm in deep trouble. But I'm going to get a stick. I'm going to do something. I'm going to try to take them out. I'm going to declare war on them because they declared war on me. And you know what? I think that is a 110% justified war. And so I think you can extrapolate that to say that as a country, um, if you're attacked, you have a right to defend yourselves. And then, well, what if after you've defended yourself, you're still worried about this regime? Do you have a right to go into their territory? I mean, these are questions that, one, these things happen, so we ought to talk about them. But there is an ability to look at it and say it's just or it's not just. Um, and, and, you know, there is, uh, uh, my brother, uh, years ago, I remember him saying one time in war, I'm always for the home team. And, uh, and, you know, that's not always right. Maybe at the end of a war, sometimes the home team is the team that started it all and everybody's, you know, kind of beating them back to home. Uh, but it, but there's some, there's some truth there. And the main thing is we cannot allow our government to make war without any rules, without any justice. That is a recipe for lots of wars and for them to be stupid wars that not only are, are wrong in terms of what's happening to somebody else somewhere, but are wrong because they're dragging us and our sons and daughters and so on into, into harm's way for no good reason. In fact, for creating more problems in the future so that maybe our our grandchildren can then be dragged into it and then their children can be dragged into it. And, and when you think about it, when you think about uh, if we weren't get, hadn't gotten out or getting out, and of course, whether we're ever totally out of Afghanistan is another question altogether, but I think the Taliban may soon insist upon it. Uh, but um, 
if you were against us getting out of Afghanistan, my question for you would have been, you're going to be there forever? Because I think you're, you're going to be there forever if you're waiting for Afghanistan to flower into this wonderful free society that, that doesn't need any help from us to, uh, to stay that way. And, uh, and so when, when I say children and their children and their children and their children, this is not, you know, there's no hyperbole in that. That's reality. Uh, one thing we briefly mentioned a few moments ago, and I guess we're kind of wandering far from. Uh, uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> and this was going to be a short podcast. Yeah, but you, you mentioned the, uh, the chemical uh, warfare that uh, Assad allegedly uh, directed against his own people. Which caused, you know, our deep state mavens and and influencers to get Trump to bomb uh, Syria, and then it was determined later that that wasn't true, and many of us were saying before the bombing, before the retaliation, or before the whatever the, the justice that was rained down from above, uh, that it was unlikely, it was highly implausible that Assad would do it. And this is the kind of argument that Glenn Greenwald does really well and what a number of other people do really well, but, the, but our major media does not. And that is looking with a qui bono. Uh, when you have who stands to gain from a lie, for instance. Well, who wants, who wants to bomb Syria? Well, we know, the, the, we know the Pentagon wants to almost always. And right. we, we need to ask why they want to. That's one of the things that I don't even really pr pretend to know exactly, other than they like a turtle war, apparently. But Assad has his place in that regime. He was just reelected. I haven't, we, we never, we don't get good coverage in our country about the nature of that reelection, but there was dancing in the streets because there are minorities, minority populations in Syria who exist only because Assad is in power. And uh, if the majority were in power, they probably won't exist. And it's a yes. horrible, horrible thing to say, but it is the truth with certain difference. I mean, not everybody's a Democrat and, not every, and most people think of it in America that democracy is majority rules. I think that that's actually incorrect. Majority rules in a context where minorities are protected and have rights. Yes. Yes. And, or nobody wants it. Or, yeah, or it's, right. no, it's not really any better. In fact, it, it, without human rights and individual rights enshrined, democracy is like the evil of dictatorship, except more chaotic. It's you yeah, know, right. it, it really is. It's and and you know, it's the kind of thing where on the right uh, and and among libertarians who are skeptical that you know, look, voting doesn't make it okay. That's absolutely the right position, but it has. It, and we've talked about this before that. Everyone I know who's talking about democracy on, around the world, it is the idea of people being able to elect their leaders and to have a government that is prohibited by the people from doing certain things that would abridge all their basic rights to think what they think, to be religious how they want to be religious or not. And, and you know, the thing about this, almost all of this comes from our Bill of Rights and our Constitution, and just to run on another tangent, I wrote about it in Common Sense way back when, 20 years ago. When we invaded Iraq and took it over and helped them reform a government, why didn't we give them our Constitution? Why didn't we give them our Bill of Rights? 
why didn't we at least suggest this is the starting point? This is where we are. And so uh, let's offer it. Instead, we had a bunch of State Department people writing up a bunch of new stuff. And it didn't have as many rights. And it shows that the folks running our government don't have the same thought process going through their heads that, that you and I do. And that's not, I think, I think that's a thought process that, um, that is pretty universal. I don't want to quite say universal, but I mean, it's not like that's just one segment of America likes the constitution or thinks the government ought to follow the law, which leads us actually to get off of this tangent exactly. and maybe sleep that, tonight. That was one of the ways that, reasons I went that direction because <laughs> right into Wednesday, um, right into yep, Wednesday, we have a question of do our uh, leaders in Congress know what the Constitution says their job is? Yes. And, and the question is, do they, are they so ignorant that they don't know or do they just really not care? And of course, also in Wednesdays, and this is, uh, this is Maxine and Nancy, sure need Joe. And this is about extending the moratorium on evictions. And we're going to get to talk. I think, I think this next week, we'll probably do something talking about the fact that, you know what, landlords, people who invest in rental property, and then, you know, they offer that rental property for a price and people move in and so on. It's a service that someone's doing and they do that so that they can make money and you may like some better than others, but they really have a right to make some money. And, and we hear about all the people facing eviction or having problems, but frankly, they're not the only people who are hurt when rents don't get paid. And when you can't evict, it means that the poor person who fell down on their luck can't be evicted. But it also means the deadbeat who didn't fall down on their luck. They decided to buy a new car because they don't have to pay the rent anymore. They get a free ride. And the person who's still paying the bill to go fix the washer that broke and the, the fix the lock that, that got messed up or whatever, that landlord's paying the bills. And it's, it's you know, it's a two-way street. And uh, anyway, but I digress. In this case, in the case of the pandemic, the reason there was a hiatus on, in some places on rents uh, was simply because the governments around the United States had prohibited people from working. Literally yes. said you can't work. And so arguably the governments at the level of government that did the prohibition, they probably do owe something to those people who, who uh, but in a sense, they owe it to the landlords. Uh, is that if, if, the, if the people they prohibited from uh, working can't pay their rent, then the rents probably should be paid by the state, but not the federal government, which is why the whole thing in here with Maxine Waters and, uh, and Speaker Pelosi and, Joe right. Biden. It all seems it all seems kind of pointless to me because it's the wrong level of government where this stuff is being talked about. But I digress. I, or that's that's just the background as I see it. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And and what happened basically is that uh, this was taken to court. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, um, um, I'm, oh, I'm going to forget his name. They're our latest guy. Um, Not Kavanaugh, is it? Yeah, Brent Kavanaugh. Okay. Uh, I want to say Kaufman. I don't know why, but anyway, Brent Brent Kavanaugh 
was a vote to uphold and not strike down the moratorium. This was a moratorium on evictions by the CDC. And, and I think the, uh, his statement in the, in the decision was that, well, this is expiring and Congress in the future would need to do something, but he didn't want to somehow strike it down right then. Maybe that would be, you know, create some disturbance or something. Well, my view is courts should strike down laws that they think are unconstitutional and not say, hey, what the heck, let's let it go on for a little bit. Is there any legislation that allows the CDC to to uh, put a moratorium on rents? I suspect that that if you talk to Lawrence Tribe, the Harvard uh, legal expert who always thinks the government can do anything it wants, if it just thinks hard enough about how to justify it, um, I'm sure he would say, yes, there's some way. And of course, uh, there was an article in the Post the other day how the Biden administration had gone to him to, how can we get some rationale together that we can do this? But as I point out in this piece, Biden himself admitted that most legal scholars don't believe there's any constitutional justification for that. Now, if you're elected and given the job of president, you take an oath to faithfully execute the laws. If you believe that this thing you're being asked to do is not faithfully executing the laws, well, you violated your oath. And I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi is, is struggling right now with whether to impeach Biden or not. I mean, she's an honest woman as the day is long. And <laughs> it's, I can't go on very long like that. Uh, but, but I mean, this is outrageous that he admits it's not constitutional, but he's going to do it anyway. And of course, the statements you'll, you'll read if you go to thisiscommonsense.org uh, <laughs> are almost, they're laughable. You want to cry, but they're laughable. Um, Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, in the basically five weeks since this decision was done, uh, did nothing. The Congress should have done something. They didn't do anything. And then it runs out. People are starting to get evicted. And oh, my goodness, somebody somewhere might be mad at me. So does Congress rush to do something? No, they're not. They're not that good at it. And Maxine Waters says, we thought that the White House was in charge. I mean, when does the Congress say, gee, we couldn't do our job, but oh, we thought the White House, we thought we were just props. And that's, you know, generally that's, um, I, won't, I won't digress. I was going to digress into, into bashing them, but, but I won't. Everyone knows just how bad they are. Right. But it's this assumption that many of these uh, Democratic uh, legislators have is that we, what we need is a dictatorship. I know, I know it sounds awful because they object to anything that Trump said was a dictatorship. You know, that was, he was a tyrant and an awful person. And, uh, you know, but, but, they, but want, they want a dictatorship of experts, though. They yeah. want a dictatorship of, of the science. They want the guys with the best science, not boobs like Trump. No, we're not going to have those guys as dictators. We're going to have Anthony Fauci and Joe Biden, expert, expert Biden. Well, now you've got to the essence of progressivism, because that is what progressivism offered the world, is that we're going to now do government by experts. Yes. Uh, that was the whole point of progressivism from the very beginning to the, to the modern day, and it's just gotten worse and less plausible, but nevertheless very, very hysterically 
promoted with the well, and, with the COVID pandemic. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. Yes, yes. Well, and now they can they can kind of try to scare you into you know because when it comes to life and death and going to the doctor, you're hoping the doctor knows something. And it's one of the few times that people say, look, this guy knows more than I do. What do I need to do? And they're hoping we'll give government, you know, big side, big government science, the same pass that we give our doctor who we can see and, and kind of tell whether they know what they're talking about or not. And if they aren't, they don't, we go to another doctor. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to, you know, bring somebody else in. But when it comes to big government, the other thing about that expertise Congress has appropriated like $50 billion to go to families to help them pay their rent because they can't pay their rent. And there's all kinds of ways that they can get that back rent. And then the, the, you know, the landlords get made whole and so on. Basically, of the $50 billion, it's like two or three billion that has actually gotten through this bureaucracy that they have created. It's not just the feds, it's also the state governments and all their creative ways to, you know, part of what they wanna do in this is pick winners and losers because then the winners owe them something. And this is the way government functions. This is pitiful on every level. It's pitiful in the constitutional level because it shows that our Congress doesn't even have a clue what their own job is. And they're, and they're not even embarrassed about it. They don't know enough to go, oh, 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 we're supposed to look busy. No, we thought, that we thought the president was in charge of everything. The president doesn't really care about the Constitution. He gave an oath to uphold. And we have a system that even when we just splurge, drop ship, you know, huge sums of money to people, we can't find people competent enough to hand it out. So, so uh, everything's great. It's summer, at least. <laughs> I think we should move to uh, crackdowns for lockdowns on Friday next, because it is about COVID, in a sense. It's about the protests in Europe against more lockdowns and the police reaction to it. And also media reaction to uh, the police reaction to it, but mainly the police reaction. You know, this is something that you and I have both mentioned, and I have other friends who have kind of all independently, you know, they spend enough time looking at media from not just different sources in the U.S., but, but media outside the U.S. And you'll see if you go to thisiscommonsense.org and you find crackdowns for lockdowns, you will see that some of the links in that uh, story go to Turkish media and German media and a joint German Indian media. That's, that's actually on the, on the side of lockdowns kind of. So it's not all one, one position, but um, we have seen, I think from really the, throughout this pandemic that there's been kind of this attitude that Americans are, you know, we just want what we want. We somehow we have too much freedom and we're just demanding people and geez, if we were just good, like the people in Europe who are more sophisticated and understand how wonderful big government is, um, you know, uh, they have national health care, uh, as if we don't have a monstrosity that really is the same sort of thing. And, and, but it's, it's interesting that the second you start to look at the protests that have gone on and on and on in France, 
uh, not just against the lockdown, also against some of the climate change things they put into effect, raising the price of gasoline, which people who actually have to drive to work, unlike a large percentage of people in France, uh, they don't like that too much. And so the Yellow Vest movement has been going on and on, almost zero, zero coverage uh, of the... Uh, of the yellow vest. And I, I think about it because I talked to this French reporter about initiative and referendum. And at the end of the interview, I, I told her, I said, you know, I've been following uh, some of the, the yellow vest protests in, in uh, France. He says, well, I'm surprised because there's been almost zero coverage in the United States on it. And I was thinking, boy, that sure is correct. Um, I think it's because it doesn't fit the narrative. If people in France and Germany and Europe where they love socialism and where they're always lionized as so, so you know, uh, sophisticated compared to us, you know, you know kind of uh, knuckle dragging Americans, um, that, that doesn't work. And, and the truth is when people are telling you what you have to wear on your face, when they're telling you that your business that you have worked to create has to just sit there and dissolve into nothingness and bankruptcy, uh, that you can't go out, that you can't you know, be with other people. These are very serious limitations on people's personal freedom. And they're being done as if you're somehow a cad if you don't like the, the government, not just telling you how much you have to pay, but where you can go, where you can't go. What, and, and of course, ultimately, where they're getting that you better let us stick a uh, something in your vein. And, you know, I, I am not opposed to the vaccine and we, we, you know, have talked about it some and we disagree and agree some, and, but, but anyone who cares about freedom and who ultimately cares about good public health policy and good public health outcomes, regardless of the policy the government has, but good outcomes, does not want medicine mandated, does not want people to be forced to take a vaccine against their will. That doesn't lead to good outcomes. Once medicine is a command from the government and not a free interaction Whatever happened to decisions between you and your doctor? That's this is this is a very dangerous place to go, and of course we're going there because of a virus that you know look it's killed a lot of people. But that's what viruses do. This isn't the first virus ever, and we cannot. And it, and of course its lethality is not you know this isn't Ebola. This is this is a uh, a virus that that you know. It seems to me, and the other thing that kills me, I guess, is no quarter given to anybody who disagrees. But then after, you know, like on the lab leak thing or on other stuff, on masks, they had a different position at the beginning. And then they do now. Um, well, wait a second. You, you, you can't allow there to be any discussion, but you change your mind. Is it, are the rest of us just supposed to sit it quietly and then you guys make all the decisions. Well, their answer is yes. That's not that's not kind of the America that uh, that I know and love.
And for Thursday, we had something a little bit different because it wasn't about America so much, but about uh, Norway and Taiwan. Yes. And uh, we, we did a special podcast, which is, of course, available at SoundCloud and it's on YouTube, uh, same place our, our regular podcasts are. And uh, it was an interview. We, a couple months ago, did the piece not being Norway, where we took Norway to task for not acting much like a, a, a good country. Norway got in trouble with Big Daddy China. Uh, Norway sells a lot of salmon to China. And in 2010, Norway gave the uh, Nobel Peace Prize to uh, Lou Jiabo. And uh, I'm sure I butchered that name, but I tried. Um, but uh, and of course, he was in prison in China and he was in prison, didn't do anything violent, totally peaceful, police and democracy, wrote some principles, some arguments for why China should move to a full fledged democracy where people had rights and and the ability to hold their government accountable. And of course, that, that lands you in prison. And so when Norway uh, and, and the, this, this was the uh, Nobel Prize Committee, the Peace Prize Committee which is independent, but it is chosen. Uh, the people on it, I think, are chosen by, at least some of them or all of them are chosen by the government of Norway. And so they do have some you know, complicity in the evil of recognizing wonderful people who give their lives uh, you know, nonviolently to try to make the world a better place. And so in 2010, when they did that, uh, China, uh, stopped buying salmon and, and basically did everything they could to wreck the Norwegian economy. And the Norwegian government knuckled under. In fact, they, they, uh, when they refused to see the Dalai Lama who came to Norway and refused to have any meetings with him, they said that it was a necessary sacrifice to show their good intentions to China. So I think that this is an important story because throughout all of the story, and I haven't even gotten to the, the podcast part of it, but throughout all of the story, there's a moral that, you know, you just can't do right by apologizing for doing right and apologizing to evil so that you can make a buck. I mean, what's either dump the whole peace prize and every pretense of being a decent free place or don't kowtow to the Chinese, you know, totalitarians. And uh, so after 2010, when this blew up because, you know, no good deed goes unpunished by the Chinazis, uh, Norway began, and there, there's only two countries in Europe that do this, Spain and Norway. But Norway began to list people who are coming from Taiwan with a Taiwan uh, passport who enter the country without needing a visa, even though people from China do need a visa. Why don't they need one from Taiwan? Because Taiwan's a peaceful place. We don't have to worry about who's coming in quite as much. And China, you don't know who the government might be sending in. So they do need a visa. So the Norwegian government recognizes these are two separate places and that one is good and one is not good, but they decide they're gonna just label all the Taiwanese Chinese. 
Now, in the grand scheme of things, you know, you've got Uyghurs in concentration camps. You've got, you know, the, the just vicious genocide against Falun Gong. And you've got uh, Chinese selling organs from political prisoners that they kill to get the organs. I mean, you got all kinds of crimes, the one child policy for decades that, that the Chinazis have committed, uh, somehow browbeating Norway into listing Taiwanese people on their residence permits as Chinese just doesn't seem like, you know, as big a deal. But it is sort of a big deal. We talked to Joseph. He doesn't use his last name in the podcast. He, his face was covered. Uh, he wants to protect himself and his family as much as possible. And, and look, the Chinese totalitarians have been known to reach out overseas and and hurt people who say things that they don't like being said. Uh, so he has every reason to fear, but he also has reason to fear because being labeled as Chinese, if he were to get into some problem with the government in Norway, it's possible that he would be repatriated to China and not to Taiwan. Now, are we just worrying about some hypothetical? Well, I guess technically, yes. But that's, it's not a hypothetical for the people who years ago were repatriated, who were Taiwanese and repatriated from Spain to China. Uh, the same thing happened in the Czech Republic. Uh, now, oftentimes these incidents, the person is, is uh, suspected of some sort of fraud or something else. <laughs> Maybe they just assume they're from China <laughs> but because they, they, they do commit a lot of fraud, China and, and Russia, because, of course, the criminals there fit right into their government. Their government isn't really clamping down on them. Uh, but anyway, I, I digress. Um, but he was somewhat concerned and it is a real concern. And it. It, to me, it's an important story, and the name of it is Say My Name. What the Taiwanese are saying is, look, you recognize us as separate. Don't force us to say we're Chinese when we're not on the residence permits. Small thing, but a big thing, because it, it I think, is a wake-up call to the West not to be wimps and not to go along with totalitarians, and that's what I say in the piece, and it's also a wake-up call that, yes, this Chinese government that, that is so horrible to its own people, don't think they're satisfied with just abusing their own people. They would like to abuse other people, too. And we're on the list. I'm not sure where, but uh, this is a worldwide problem. And Taiwan's really high on the list. We can say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we do know they're first on the list. And, and you know, the other thing that I think is so, one of the reasons I talk a lot about Taiwan, and it is because they're first on the list, but it's also because if you look at the last 40 years in modern history, Taiwan has gone from a basically totalitarian, certainly an authoritarian regime, a place where if you said anything the government didn't like, you might be disappeared, you might be arrested, not good things were going to happen, and no free elections. And then there was enough battling from the public that they overthrew, which the 
you know, didn't overthrow, but they overcame the resistance of this national Chinese government that, of course, had come after World War II to Taiwan. Now, there were plenty of Han Chinese people who had lived in Taiwan for years, who had lived there throughout, you know, for 50 years when Japan controlled it, or who lived there before Japan ever controlled it. But <laughs> but they weren't necessarily the same as the nationalists who came over with Chiang Kai-shek. And that's why when the nationalists came over, when, when people look at Taiwan as just Chiang Kai-shek versus Mao, they're missing most of the picture because Chiang Kai-shek came over and put down the Taiwanese, whether they were of Chinese ancestry or Aboriginal or whatever. And, and that has changed now. And that's why this is not uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Taiwan. This is Chai Ing-wen, the elected female president with liberal values. Uh, this is a, a free and, and democratic place. Not perfect. <laughs> I don't know anywhere that is. But the, the change is so dramatic. And of course, it scares the devil out of China. You know, the reason that they're always trying to put down people who say anything they don't like is because they know how powerful what we say is. They know that people are speaking truth. And if they can speak truth to power, power cannot continue to be evil because others will take action. Um, and, and so this is, to me, a huge issue um, I see Taiwan, if Taiwan stays free, I think the world will overcome the threat of totalitarianism in China. I think the world will become more democratic and more free. If Taiwan doesn't stay free, it means 24 million people lose that freedom. It means Asia is split. It means there's nothing to stop China from taking the rest of the South China Sea. And that means Vietnam does whatever China wants and the Philippines does whatever China wants. And it means that if the U.S. can't protect Taiwan, that it really can't protect Japan either. And Japan then is really has to decide, what do we do? And of course, then you've got Australia, which is another like 26 million people. A uh, big landmass, but about the same size population-wise as Taiwan. And what does Australia do? How do they protect themselves from China that's now taken all over all of Asia? And again, I'm you know I'm not a big uh, hey let's go U.S. empire. I'd like to see the world, uh, free countries of the world, start to work together to push back against China primarily, but also you know Russia's there. Let's all as people, not just as regimes. Let's push back against evil. And, and these regimes are so beyond bad government that they're evil. Uh, so I think we have to recognize it. But that's why I spend a lot of time talking about China and Taiwan, because I think about, you know, in, in uh, maybe tomorrow, <laughs> if a bus hits me or 10 or 20 years, I'm going to be gone. We're all going to be gone. And our kids are going to live in this world and their kids and if you look at the big picture, it's not just about what happens in the U.S., it's what happens all across the world. And I think we have a heck of a threat that's not only a threat to Asia, but a threat to the whole world, including the good old USA.
Well, very good. I think that that would normally be a place to stop on the podcast this week in common sense for the first week of August 2021. So there we are. There we are. And I encourage people the uh, podcast, which has a lot of the history intertwined into the the discussion of this event in Norway. Uh, it's Say My Name, Taiwan, uh, and available on YouTube as well as this podcast is. And through various podcatchers. So it is on this series, uh, though it's sort of billed as Common Sense with Paul Jacob, but not this week, week in Common Sense, since it isn't in this week in Common Sense episode. So a bonus episode. That's what it That's is. That's right. That's right. For Pe free. Yeah, there you are. And speaking <laughs> of bonuses, uh, did you uh, pay attention to, very much to the, the uh, thoughts of the day that I put up this week? You know, I didn't this week. I did see... Uh, one of them, uh, but I, I'm trying to think if I, that's last week's or this week's, but mention which one uh, or two you were thinking of. Well, I, there's several that I find amusing, uh, or and one, one especially amusing. I, I don't know. Almost nobody knows who Ernest Brahma was, but he was a writer, a British writer. Uh, and his line here is, when struck by a thunderbolt, it is unnecessary to consult the book of dates as to the precise meaning of the omen. It's just a droll saying from one of his funny books. Uh, he wrote about China, a mythical China, a mythical China where there might have been dragons. I like the Alexei de Tocqueville quote this week, especially, because there he says, while democracy seeks equality and liberty, socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. And I think that people should <clears throat> see that equality in liberty is different from the other kinds of equality people can obtain. And we don't want those other kinds of equality, if you ask me. Yes. And, you know, we talked last week, I thought uh, and it was a it was a digression, but it was a good one about monetary policy and inflation. And, you know, we talked about how much they're spending. We kind of went on a, a little uh, tear on that. But, you know, this is, we were supposed to believe that government needs to be there to fight this inequality. But I believe your view, and I know my view, is government is creating the inequality. I don't have a problem with inequality per se, but when government creates it, it's doing it artificially. And when government destroys the money supply, I can guarantee you it's not going to be the, the richest people who are left holding the bag. They're going to be the first ones to figure it out and to take protective action. It's going to be the middle class and the poor who are not as quick and able to, to, you know, figure out what to do and to protect themselves from that kind of damage. That happened very much so, exactly as you say, in Weimar Germany during the inflation then. And that led to the Nazi Germany. Yeah. Because the Nazis did control the money supply and they did make it work for the state. But that led also to all the other things Nazis do. And I think maybe we should try to avoid Nazis. I'm with you. Nazis and Chi Nazis. We'll see each other next weekend. Thank you much, sir. Yep. Yeah, bye.